Hello, listeners of the John 315 podcast. Jonathan here. I just wanted to start out the show by just giving a quick apology that this episode is a week late. Um, Me and Jeremy recorded this with like plenty of time and everything, but it was getting near the end of the quarter uh, and I had some term papers that I had to do. And so I wasn't able to get everything edited and cut together for our regular release date of last Saturday. So sorry that this is running a little bit late, but it's out for you now. uh, And we are still on track for giving you your Christmas episode uh, in uh, next week. So be looking for that. But anyway, hope you enjoy the show. Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome to the John 315 Podcast, the show where we break open the mysteries of the most popular and misunderstood Bible verses and put them back into context. I am your host. They call me Jonathan, bringing gold, incense, and myrrh Van Shank. And here is my co-host. They call him Jeremy, Captive Israel Swingle. Now, Jeremy, why do they call you Captive Israel Swingle? Because I'm mourning and lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. <laughs> Yes, very good. So what Jeremy is referencing is a popular uh, Advent hymn uh, called O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Now, Jeremy, why is They know what I'm referencing, John. (laughs) Well, okay. I don't know. You know, some people aren't super hip. Maybe we get new converts or something like that. Uh, who are listening. But but anyway, so Jeremy, why why are we theming around this uh, particular Advent hymn for you? Uh, well, because it's my favorite and it's the best objectively with zero dispute, uh, valid dispute to be had. It is the best Christian hymn, not just the best Christian uh, carol or whatever, or Christmas song. I think it's my favorite Christian song just ever. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, so I, I I hear you with that, but I would disagree. I do not think that it is the best Christmas hymn. Hold on, hold on. I said objective. I said objective. I said it was indisputable. Ah, well, I, I hear you. <laughs> so that how your you subjective <laughs> experience of the hymn is that it is the best in the world, but I would say objectively, We Three Kings is actually the best Christmas carol. So that must be why you're bringing gold and frankincense and myrrh. Is that right? Indeed. Indeed. That is, in fact, why I am bringing gold, incense, and myrrh Van Shank. And here is my argument, Jeremy, for why We Three Kings is the best Christmas hymn. And that is because it actually is a Christmas hymn, where O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is an Advent hymn. It is not a Christmas hymn. Bah. Whatever, man. (laughs) That's a low blow. (laughs) Yeah, I'm just being nitpicky because it so for me, I I, I really love Advent, you know, the the uh, uh, four Sundays or so before Christmas, uh, just because it's this like wonderful time for us to be like looking forward to in anticipation of Christ's birth. Now, a lot of people talk about this as the, as like the Christmas season, but that's not true. It's Advent. Christmas starts on December 25th and continues until Epiphany on January either 5th or 6th. I, I can't remember off the top of my head. And that's actually the Christmas season. So you don't get Christmas until the 25th. You get Advent for the first half of December. And it's all about anticipating Christ's birth. And then you get Christmas where we actually get born Jesus and like, and that's awesome. But you can't, it's it's like you have to go through Lent before you get to get to Easter. And, you know, you got to go through Good Friday before you get to the resurrection. So you got to go through Advent before you get to Christmas. That's, that's all I'm saying. Well, okay. Two, two points here. First of all, um, at my church, we did O Come, O Come, Emmanuel last week. So 
I don't want to hear it. <laughs> um, and and we did. Sorry, I forgot the other part of that. We also did We Three Kings. We literally did both hymns. Um, so <laughs> so as far as I'm concerned, the distinction between Advent and Christmas might be important for non-musical reasons. But as far as songs go, I think they all can be kind of wrapped up into one. So that's my first yeah, point. Yeah, you're right. My second point is this. I would actually argue O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is both an Advent and a Christmas song, even if we do want to make a sharp delineation between the two. Because the whole point of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel and why I love it is because it is written from the perspective of the people of Israel waiting for the Messiah. But it's also written like because it was written many years later <laughs> for us Christians today. I think it's like was written in the 12th century or something. At least the text was. Um, I don't know about the song itself, but uh, but like kind of the point is that we also are expectantly awaiting the Lord Jesus Christ's second return, uh, just like the people, the captive Israel that were ransomed by Christ on, you know, uh, when he first came. So like we're waiting to be removed from our exile as we're scattered throughout the whole world. Uh, as Christians in every nation, just like Israel was scattered throughout the nations, uh, you know, of the ancient Near East and Babylon and and all that. So I don't know. That's I, I think it's both. I think we can sing it on Christmas today uh, in 2020 as we expectantly await our deliverance just the way that Israel did. Sure. And I'll, I'll totally give you that, Jeremy. I'm just being a little bit nitpicky about it. But I, I think hearing your argument, I'll accept it's also a Christmas hymn. Uh, and, uh, as far as hymns go, Christmas and Advent are pretty similar and interchangeable in the, in the songs that you sing, uh, which would actually be an argument for why, you know, if, if I was being specific, I wouldn't be allowed to sing We Three Kings until after December 25th, uh, which I definitely have been singing it for the last like three weeks or so. Uh, and so I should, I should be consistent. <laughs> well, yeah, the Kings came <laughs> after his birth. <laughs> it's true. Now, okay. I will, I will grant you. We Three Kings does have the major drawback of having in its first line a extra biblical assertion that there were three kings, which is not, it's nowhere in scripture that there were three kings. There are three gifts. We don't know how many wise men there were. <laughs> so I will, I will grant you. Well, okay, no, let's go. If we're in the business of nitpicking, let's go further. Not only the first verse, but the second, third, and fourth also are all extra biblical because they all assert things about the meaning of the three gifts that are total conjecture and not really stated in scripture. Now, granted, I think at least at least in some ways they're good conjectures, <laughs> but but it's still extra biblical. So so I, I I hear you with that, but at the same time they do uh, the 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 following verses do enunciate the three main offices of Christ as oh no it's not the three offices of Christ darn <gasps> <laughs> well no I, I I well yeah so prophet priest and king you got the sacrifice you got the God and king so you don't have prophet. Yes, yeah, so it's 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 king god and and sacrifice. So it's not even priest, it's sacrifice there. So but okay, okay. So I will back it up. It's not the three offices of Christ, but it's three very important functions and identities that Christ inhabits. Well, the Jesus being our sacrifice is part of his priestly ministry, for sure. Like so that one could definitely be rolled under the priest banner if you ask me. But you do you are missing the prophet. That that's, is true. That's true. Okay, okay. Okay. So we're missing we're missing the prophet. But Nonetheless, so it's not it's not technically the three offices of Christ, but I think it is an excellent song in that it it tells this it tells this story and uh, like 
elucidating all of these different themes and ideas about who Christ is and what he does. Uh, and it, it's sort of like using the backdrop of the, you know, gifts of the wise men as this opportunity to to talk about different aspects of who Christ is. And for that, like, I, I think it's this masterpiece of tying together a bunch of different themes into kind of like one tight, consistent song that you can hold on to. So, you know, you don't need a whole separate song about Christ being God, a whole separate song about Christ being king, and a whole separate song about Christ being the sacrifice. You just get all of those all looped together in one awesome minor key, which is just wonderful to sing. Yeah, well, okay, so I've been talking shade, but uh, We Three Kings really is a fantastic song um and uh, there's probably people listening who don't know anything other than the first verse and they're like puzzled what we're talking about but for those who don't know the second through the fourth verse um talk about the meaning of the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh and why each of the purported three kings though there may have been more or less um are bringing you know that gift and then the fifth verse like erupts into this Glorious now, behold him arise, king and God in sacrifice. Alleluia, alleluia, sounds through the earth and skies. And so it's kind of like, you know, the, the gold indicates that a king is here. The frankincense indicates that that he's God. Um, and then the myrrh indicates that he's going to die. Um, so it's a great song for sure. And if you have enjoyed our little discussion and nitpicking of Christmas, then you're going to have to tune in two weeks from now because we have a Christmas extravaganza planned for you all. We are going to wreck your nativity <laughs> scenes with facts and logic. Because that's what we're about here at the John 315 podcast, about wrecking all of your hopes and dreams and like treasured traditions. Did you know that your depiction of baby Jesus might be violating the second commandment? <laughs> <laughs> Tune in next time to see if you completely disagree with that assertment. <laughs> Sorry, with that assertion, or if, uh, if you have something to say that might convict you. <laughs> We better move on to Romans. <laughs> putting Christmas aside for a couple weeks. <laughs> Cut the chit-chat. Let's crack open the word. Well, we have, are setting aside Christmas for another two weeks here, but until then, we have an episode for you now continuing our series on The Romans Road. This is episode three of... I think we're going to have like six when it's all done. So if you haven't listened to the first two episodes, we recommend that you go back and take a look at those. Um, and, you know, before we get going here. But today we are on the third stop in the Romans road, which is Romans 5 verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So, Jeremy, what what's kind of like, how is this verse used in the context of the Romans road? Sure. Well, so far, um, our first stop two weeks ago, that was on Romans 3.23. We talked about how everybody is a sinner, um, and particularly both uh, the group of Jews and the group of Gentiles, which encompasses the entire human race. And then our second stop on the road uh, was 6.23. Because we sin, we are deserving of death. That was kind of the second point there. So we've got a logical progression so far. Everybody sins, therefore we all deserve death. But now uh, we're on part three, and it's going to be substantially happier. <laughs> we finally have some good news. Uh, for those of you who have never heard of the gospel or the Romans Road before who are joining us, I know you've been holding out for four weeks, wondering when we were going to be uh, slightly less depressing on this podcast. 
Um, <laughs> but so f finally, we're, we're here. We did it. Romans 5.8 exists. Um, and it asserts that Christ died for us while we were still sinners. And in fact, that is one way in which God shows his love for us. The Romans road approach to this verse is once again, like totally on the right track. <laughs> so if you're evangelizing to someone using the Romans road, you would, you know, point out once you've said that we deserve death because of our sins, you'd be like, hey, but guess what? Christ died in our place. Like he died the death that we deserve and our sins are covered and God showed his love for us this way. And so this would be kind of where you yeah, make the turn in the pitch from like everything's gloomy to, hey, but actually there's good news. And this, this is where the gospel really starts to come into play now that we've set the groundwork of the, our need for salvation in the first place. So this is a pivotal moment on the Romans road. And I think generally you and I would agree that Romans 5.8 does indeed teach that. Yeah, totally, Jeremy. The Romans road definitely is on the right track with this verse. And I, I think it's also pretty straightforward just from the gr grammar and structure of the verse. It's like it's pretty straightforward. It's like, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, like what what's really the, you know, how could John and Jeremy possibly pick this verse apart, right? Uh, <laughs> Where there's a will, there's a way. <laughs> yeah, it's all, it's all pretty straightforward <laughs> stuff. Um, and yeah, certainly. Well, well uh, definitely, this is one of those episodes where, again, our argument is not people get this verse super wrong. Our argument is, actually, there's a lot more really cool stuff going on underneath the hood of this verse and in the context of this verse. And so that's what we're going to be focusing on this episode, is trying to make sense of really all of the super cool implications and details that are associated with this verse over against just kind of like the top level, Jesus died for our sins. Uh, thing that's kind of on the face of the verse here. Yeah. And for those of you who really enjoyed kind of our episodes where we absolutely tear down a popular interpretation instead of just supporting it, like we have been with this Romans Road series, don't worry, there's one coming. <laughs> there's one in particular that I think uh, later in the Romans Road is a pretty incorrect interpretation. So don't worry, stay tuned. Fear uh, <laughs> not, we will trash your treasured traditions. Yes, and, and we'll do it on Christmas for the Christmas episode as well. But for now, we're going to be super mellow and just chat positively <laughs> about these verses. Yeah, it's very so. thematically on point. It's like we finally got into the good news. And so in the podcast, we're also at the good news of like, yeah, no, no, this verse pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah. The evangelical church has not gotten the gospel wrong this whole time. Rejoice. <laughs> <laughs> it's time for the meat. All right. With that being said, um... Maybe let's jump right in and quickly situate ourselves in the book of Romans. Uh, we've sort of been taking a broad view of what's going on in the whole book uh, as we go. And uh, so we, I, I think it was two episodes ago, we talked about Romans 1 through 4, because we were chatting about chapter 3, verse 23. And so we touched on that that whole content, kind of how Paul establishes the universal sinfulness of all people, whether Jew or Gentile. And then chapter 4 proved that as a result of this, uh, understanding that everybody's a sinner, Jew and Gentile, the ground of our justification must be faith alone and not works of the law. And Paul proves that using passages from Genesis that describe the justification of Abraham. Then last time in episode two, we looked at chapter six, verse 23. Uh, and we, I don't know that we talked a lot about what's going on after chapter four, um, but now we're going back to five, eight. So I think maybe it would be good to quickly summarize this whole little section from chapters five through eight. Uh, the way I see it, Paul takes these four chapters to 
have a series of discussions about the consequences and the implications of his teaching of justification by faith alone. So he establishes that in chapter four, and then he teases it out in various ways. So for example, chapter five talks about being in, in Adam and er, er, being in Christ rather, instead of being in Adam and how justification by faith alone puts us, puts us in this new category of being in Christ instead of in Adam. Chapter six, which is where we're at today, or sorry, no, it was where we were at last time. Uh, chapter six talks about how we shouldn't sin just because we're saved by faith instead of works. Like we still need to do the right thing, even though those right things don't save us. Um, and then chapter seven, which is not part of the Romans road, but just to summarize, it talks about how, you know, the true Christian struggles with sin and tries to fight against it. Um, and we're not sinless, even though, you know, even though we have the Holy Spirit. Um, and then chapter eight goes on this crazy pants, like wild tour through the Holy Spirit and how even if we die, it doesn't matter because we have Christ. And Romans eight's like the best chapter in the Bible. So I'm not even going to try to summarize it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh you should just go read it yeah well we do have an episode on romans 8 1 coming up so we will get to talk about chapter 8 in more detail but so that's kind of this first half there's 16 chapters in romans that kind of takes us through chapter 8 so we sort of know the lay of the land here the the you know the trajectory of paul's arguments so with that grounding let's actually take a little bit of a look at our verse in question here just to kind of address a few sort of base level points before we get too deep into the context so one of the first ones is the, that you'll notice in the verse here, it says, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So, you know, as Christians, we have a Trinitarian understanding of God, that God is, um, you know, it, it, there's the person of the Father, the person of the Son, and the person of the Holy Spirit, who together comprise one being of, of God, God himself. Uh, and so the question is that, like, you know, when the word God is used here in this verse, like, in what sense should we understand that to be referring to? Is this, like, just generally referring to the being of God? Or is this referring to one of the persons of God, like, you know, Father, Son, or Holy Spirit? Now, um, in this case, because the second half of the verse says, you know, Christ died for us, it may be tempting to think that the God that's being referred to in the beginning of the verse here, the book God shows his love for us, is actually in this case referring to the person of the Son. That it's like, you know, you could say the person of the Son shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, he, the person of the Son, died for us. Um, but I, we don't think that's actually really what's going on here. We think that... Um, in this case, actually, God is referring to the person of the Father. And kind of the reason why we argue that is typically when you see in the New Testament the word God being used kind of as this generic title, it's almost always referring to the person of the Father. It's only very rarely, actually, in the New Testament that you see Jesus or Christ being, like, directly identified with the, like, what would be rendered in English as the word God. Oftentimes, uh, instead, the New Testament prefers like Christ or the Lord or, you know, like one of these other titles to refer to the person of the Son. And so in that case, we're kind of bringing that whole biblical context of the way that the New Testament uses the specific word God to understand that here in this particular case, likely Paul is referring to the person of the Father. Yeah, and usually if Christ is referred to as God— um, it's contextually obvious, like in the gospel of John, when Thomas, um, 
is able to see the risen Lord after he doubts. And then he exclaims, my Lord and my God. Right. So he's kind of like he's talking to Jesus, who is Lord, and he's been called Lord throughout the Gospel of John. And now he's also referred to as God. Well, that's a little contextually obvious in a way that it's not in Paul. And so in the epistles, when you don't have the human Jesus walking around all the time, um, when, when Paul is making a distinction between Christ and God within a verse, there's every good reason to expect that he's talking about God the Father when he uses the generic term God. And that's just kind of how the New Testament writers, especially Paul, approach it. Um, and then when when the word Lord is talked about, unless it's contextually obvious that uh, Yahweh, the name Yahweh, is being referred to by the title Lord, which happens if they're quoting the Old Testament sometimes, uh, then usually the, the word Lord is interpreted as a reference to the Son. Uh, and that's this is like a bigger topic than really... Um, this episode can cover fully. But uh, for now, th this is kind of our operative assumption that that Paul is saying it is God the Father showing his love when Christ died for us. And I guess, you know, <laughs> some people might think this is a little bit of nitpicking because, of course, Christ also showed his love for us when he died for us. That's still true. <laughs> but we're just trying to point out right here at the outset that that that's not technically what the grammar of Romans 5.8 is saying. Certainly. And so we're actually getting a very specific teaching that Paul is giving to us here, and it namely has to do with the relationship between the Father and the Son. That here, in this case, it is the Father showing his love for us in the Son dying on our behalf. And this sort of connects with the, the New Testament understanding of the relationship between the Father and the Son, that it is the Father who gives the Son in death on, you know, on our behalf that, you know, we can then, uh, you know, have like salvation and, and forgiveness. And like this is one of the verses that is like teaching kind of exactly that idea that there is this connection between what the Father does and what the Son does and how those two interface with one another in the death of Christ. Yeah, well, and let me ask you a question, John. Um, like, so both of us are new fathers. We have nine-month-old, just about, sons. So, like, how does this make you feel that's that's new uh, in the last nine months now that you're a dad? This idea of, the like, the emotional and perhaps the relational suffering of God the Father sending his son to die on the cross. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it is deeply unsettling. <laughs> yeah, you're telling me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think there's, you know, being a new father, there's definitely this this way that I make sense of my relationship with my son, that it is like my duty to care for him and to protect him and to ensure that he is like growing and developing and, you know, kind of like all of those ideas. And so the notion of like giving my son for like someone else, like, you know, put like putting suffering and penalty on my like on my biological son for the purpose of like addressing the need of somebody else is like absolutely baffling to me. It's like, I would sooner take that penalty onto myself for my son, or, you know, even if I'm truly honest with myself, perhaps I would be willing to put that penalty on someone else to protect my son rather than take their penalty and put it on my son. Yeah, it, it is this like possessiveness. And of course, it, the thing that makes it even more mind-blowing is that the relationship between the father and the son is even more deep and mysterious and amazing and, and, and I guess, heartfelt and close than the relationship that I have with my son. So that's what makes it even crazier to me is that the father-son thing is far, 
far more divine and mysterious um, even than human fatherhood. But but no, I agree with you. It's kind of like when you get married, you sort of like you make a choice. You know, I love this person. I'm going to choose to love this person. We're going to stick together through thick and thin, you know. But it's like when you have a son or a daughter, you know, it's like you don't really make the choice. <laughs> There's no choice involved in like loving your child. <laughs> it's just like, yes, you, you do not pick who your children are where you do pick who your spouse is, but you don't pick who your children are. Right. Like it, they just are who they are and you love them the second they show up. <laughs> it's like, I remember going home like the, the night Josiah was born and just like, it just hit me that like, wow, I love this person more than anything else in the entire world. And I don't even have any clue who he is, <laughs> like, you know, like really. Um, so I don't know, like all this, the point, I guess, the reason I had to ask is that I feel like this passage just hits different <laughs> as a dad. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. Like while we were still sinners, God shows his love for us by sending his son to die for our sins. And I think I speak for any parent anywhere, fathers and mothers, when I say that it would be far easier to give myself up to death than to see my son die. Um, like that's not even a, that's not even a difficult <laughs> decision to make. So the fact that I don't know, it says something that that perhaps God the Father suffered more um, the emotional suffering of His Son dying on the cross than even Christ suffered via the physical suffering. I mean, that's totally me making up theology off the top of my head, but <laughs> there has to be a reason why Paul wanted to focus on the Father here. Well, so, you know, father-son business aside, it's a detail I think a lot of people miss here. Um, let's talk about this word shows. Uh, God shows his love for us um, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Other translations, I think the NIV uses uh, the word demonstrates, which is also a great translation, a little stronger than the word shows, but it means the same thing in this context, you know. Uh, so what about this idea that like the sacrifice of Christ is an objective historical action. It is a thing that happened in time, which shows or demonstrates, or we might even say proves, uh, God's love. God shows his love this way. Now, love is kind of like this intangible thing, right? It's subjective. It's a feeling, we could say. Um, it's, you know, a disposition toward a person. Uh, and so, I don't know, like, <laughs> God demonstrates his love. He shows his love in this action. So at the risk of trumpeting a tired cliche, <laughs> which we've all probably heard a lot if we go to evangelical churches, you know, love does. It's it's an action, not not a feeling. Or is it, Jeremy? Is it that love is an action? You know, I think we like have this phrase, you know, sort of in our mind of like love does. And I think there's a truth that that is trying to emphasize. But I think we do have to hold on to the notion that, like, love is something that you feel. Like, it is a, a like, state that you are in um, more than, like, you know, you know, rather than a, like, action that you partake of, if that makes sense. Sure. Maybe we could say that, like, love is a feeling that leads to action if it's actually love. <laughs> <laughs> that's, and I think that's the point that, I don't know, that's the point I feel like preachers who are trying to make a good point. Are, that's what they're meaning when they say things like love does love is an action right well okay it's that's totally true like <laughs> we don't necessarily have a whole lot of bones to pick with it but perhaps it's like yeah i think cold action isn't love but also claiming you have love but not acting that's not really love 
Now, it's it's interesting that you use that phrase, Jeremy, because that actually reminds me of a, a whole conversation that we had a number of episodes back about the book of James uh, and the notion of what faith is. And, you know, James's whole argument is like, you know, I will show you my faith by uh, my works. And we kind of came down on that of this idea of like, you, you know, we see that a person is justified by their works and kind of the way that we made sense of that is like justify in the sense of proving it to be real, like demonstrating it. Uh, like demonstrating its existence, like faith is demonstrated in works. And I, I think that there's something very similar going on here that we're trying to talk about, where that love is something that is demonstrated by the actions that it motivates. Yep, just like faith would lead one to trust God unto the sacrifice of your own son, to, t- to tie it in even more with you know the Abraham and Isaac episode. Um, love is something that, that you can't just say you have it. it. It is demonstrated, right? If you tell your wife you love her, but you never want to spend time with her, then she's not going to believe you. And she has no right to believe you. She has no reason. Like, <laughs> Well, Jeremy, it's one thing to kind of like make this argument about like love being a feeling as opposed to like, you know, love is something that you do. But, it, you know, we sort of have made this analogy to James here and kind of the, the utilization of faith and works you know, with like love and action here. But is is that something that we're pulling from the text of Romans? Or are we just kind of like leaping off to some other context to like make an analogy and then slapping it on top of this verse here? Well, it is a little bit of a, a I don't want to say creative interpretation, but <laughs> I'm kind of going beyond the the direct statements of Paul because Paul doesn't like psychoanalyze his own feelings about things. Um, <laughs> the way that we, we might be like c- making distinguish, like making a distinguishing point between subjective and objective. Paul doesn't like go on any long discussions of that sort of thing. But I do want to point out that in Romans five up through verse eight and actually going on a little bit, we do actually see a shift in Paul's thought between very subjective feelings um, from verses one through five to objective things that actually happen in history and are verifiable. And that would be like verse six through 11. Um, And so I think we haven't actually read the context of verse eight so far. So let's read it now and kind of pay attention starting from verses one through five. Like we're going to look at changes that happen to us subjectively as a result of our justification. Remember chapter four established our justification. Now we're kind of teasing out with Paul what that means Um, And first, Paul is going to talk a lot about rejoicing and having character and having hope, for example, in these first five verses. Do you want to read those, John, and and maybe kind of like highlight the words that pop out that are sort of subjective and feeling oriented? Yeah, yeah, that are kind of connected to our direct experience. Well, so let's start in Romans chapter five, uh, uh, starting in verse one here. We say, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, again, recalling, so the therefore is he's referring to his argument from chapter four that we have, in fact, been justified by faith, not by works. So, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access to faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. There's one thing of our experience of we experience rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. Now, continuing in verse three, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. There's another of, you know, rejoicing in our sufferings. That's part of our experience. Knowing that suffering produces endurance 
That's another part of our experience. We experience the endurance. And endurance produce, produces character. That's another subjective experience. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So even that last one of God's love being poured into our hearts. This is all the language here is very much about our experience and the things that we are are like feeling or inhabiting as a result of being justified by faith. The rejoicing, the endurance, the character, the hope, the love being poured into our hearts. All these things are about like our subjective experience. And pay attention, especially to verse 5. God's love being poured into our hearts. So you have God's love in verse 5, and then you have God's love in verse 8. In verse 5, God's love is a subjective experience of the Holy Spirit concerning the hope that we have. Now, hope is a feeling and an emotion. Hope can be grounded in something objective, but hope itself is subjective. It's something that we experience. Um, it isn't something that you, you can't, like, argue, like, you know, that you have hope. That's not something anyone else can access but you. Um so right now and now, I mean, you might show it on your face or whatever, but it's not something like the death of a person on a cross that you can point to as a historical event. So you got different ways of dealing with God's love in these two verses. All right, now let's move on um, and look at verses six through 11. Um, well, and you'll see actually as we get to verse 11 that there's also rejoicing. So again, Paul is not making extremely fine distinctions between these, but I, I just think it's good to notice the shift in his thought at verse six. When Paul is going to start talking about the death of Christ and God showing his love through a particular thing. So let's let's uh, jump in here on verse six. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So now all of a sudden we are talking about like a historical event at the right time, like grounded in history, Christ died. So Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might, e one might dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, since we, have, since we now have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Now, again, these are all things that are, are like uh, uh, like objective realities of like being justified by his blood. That's not necessarily something that I'm feeling. It's just like something that's true about me. And same thing of like A being... A legal declaration as we explored earlier in the James episode. <laughs> totally. And then the other part of that of like saved by, saved by him from the wrath of God. Again, that's just like an objective quality of reality of like either you're under the wrath of God or you're not under the wrath of God. And that's not necessarily strictly connected to your feeling of whether you're under the wrath or not. So it's, again, an objective reality thing of being saved by him from the wrath of God. Now, continuing in verse 10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Again, these are all statements about objective reality, not necessarily our experience of that reality. And then in verse 11, we finish up with, More than that, we also rejoice in God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Yeah, so now that we've read these 11 verses, we've gotten an idea for the context. It, you know, I, again, there's not 
too many fine distinctions between it, but I do notice that Paul's first thing that he wants to say once he establishes justification by faith in chapter 4 is talking about having peace with God. What does reconciliation with God look like? It looks like rejoicing in our sufferings. It looks like endurance. It looks like increasing character as the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. It looks like having hope because and not being put to shame because we have the love of God poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So Paul does have this, this understanding that our belief that we are not, you know, under God's wrath, our belief that we've been justified, our belief in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a subjective experience and it produces hope in us through the Holy Spirit. And it does that. And, and that's kind of, it's a related, but it's a separate topic from looking at the objective facts. And then Paul shifts to the objective facts in verse 6, starts talking about Christ's death, starts talking about our legal declaration on the basis of Christ's death for us. We are justified. Christ died for us. And this is how he showed, this is how God the Father showed his love for us through this action. And that's how we know he loves us, because he died for us. And then we have this interesting comment in verse 10, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life, the son's life. So Paul is making a lesser to greater argument here, which is a, a frequent form of argument in the Bible, especially um, for Jesus. Jesus makes a lot of lesser to greater arguments. But the, the force of the argument is basically this. If God was willing to send his son to die for us when we were enemies with him, when we hated God and God was putting his wrath on us and there was nothing, no community between us whatsoever, if God was willing to do that even when we were in that status, well, now we're reconciled. Now we don't have the status of being under the wrath of God anymore. So now that we are reconciled to God, why wouldn't the, you know, the easier part of it be done? Why wouldn't we be saved if we're reconciled and we're no longer under his wrath? Why, you know, wouldn't we be saved? That's kind of the argument Paul is making here. Um, if this subjective thing happened in history, then our hope is grounded in something that is not just our subjective feelings, but an objective reality. So for Paul, these two things are coming together in this passage. We have hope because of the objective historical facts of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the resurrection part's important here too. That's why Paul says we shall be saved by his life which there's a lot of debate about that phrase. <laughs> Some people think it means like as Jesus lived, right? And fulfilled the law on earth, then we'll be saved by that. But but I think I, I have the feeling that it's about the resurrected Jesus who is now interceding for us and our sins at the right hand of the Father. That That's my take. His sacrifice saved us and now he continues to intercede for us as our high priest. That's the argument of the book of Hebrews. So I think his life refers to not just his life on earth, but his present life at the right hand of the Father. Yeah, Jeremy, and and kind of hearing you making make this argument, I th I think I pretty much agree with with what you're saying there. Is you know this idea of Paul kind of starting with our experience in the first half of the section, and then moving to kind of the elements of objective reality, and 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 I love this focus that it is like where our confidence comes from is not that you know, this, uh, uh, like, these subjective elements of, of reality, this, like, rejoicing, this endurance, the, the confidence comes from the objective things that God has done. It is that, you know, God shows his love for us in this, that we are justified by his blood, saved from his wrath, you know, that all of these things are elements of reality that God has done, and we can have confidence on those things. 
But it's not merely just that we have confidence in these objective realities, but like on top of that, God also gives us the experience of those realities as well, that we get to experience being justified, you know, you know the state of being justified in that we can rejoice in our sufferings, that we have endurance and character and hope that we are, you know, kind of being put in this new objective category, we have the subjective experience of being in that category. And so I, I really just love the balance of these verses here, that Paul is kind of holding both of them out to us, of saying, you know, there is this experience that you have, and there is also this, you're, you're like, you are justified in having that experience as well, if we can kind of overload that term a little bit here. For sure. Yeah. Well, it, and I think salvation here, let's let's be clear about terms since we're nitpicking the word love to, you know, the nth degree. <laughs> you know, salvation is also, as we mentioned on this podcast, a term that means a lot of different things depending on the context. And I think salvation here is talking about salvation from judgment, salvation from hell. Um, and I, I would say that both because the wrath of God is mentioned as something that we've been saved from, but also because like hope is kind of the topic <laughs> under discussion here. Uh, and so like hope is something about the future, right? So so the, the expectation that we will not be condemned, which is rooted in the objective facts of the death of Jesus Christ for our sins, that gives us hope that we won't be condemned by God. So we could call this an, you know, eschatological salvation, perhaps, right? It is salvation concerning the end times and our own personal destinies into eternity. Yes, and let me bolster that a little bit with the content of verse 3 here, um, where it says, you know, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and, you know, on from there. And so it's kind of, even in this whole topic, Paul is acknowledging that you aren't necessarily being delivered from the sufferings of your current state rather he kind of makes the reverse argument that the like sufferings of your current state are things that are producing good things for you like endurance and character and hope you know so the whole verse is actually pointing you forward and and actually directing you away from the elements of suffering that you are currently experiencing by saying that like rather because of this hope that you have because of you know, this reconciliation that we have with God, we can rejoice even though we currently are in this state of suffering. That, you know, God isn't promising to deliver us from the elements of our experience that are painful or hard. He is, in this case, promising to save us from this eternal judgment. And because of that hope, we now can rejoice even in our current sufferings. Absolutely. That's a great argument. I hadn't even considered, so... Thanks for making my argument stronger, John. Yeah, I got you, Jeremy. <laughs> Great. Well, before we move on, because I want to talk a little bit more about just, you know, how incredible God's love is. Uh, but maybe we could park here for a second and talk about this whole subjective versus objective thing. And I'm curious to know your thoughts on this, John, because I do have a little bit of a bone to pick with uh, with the way that a lot of Christian apologists you know, people who defend the faith in public argue about how we know God is like real, how we know Christ rose from the dead, all of these like questions of what what is called epistemology. So, and for those who aren't super interested in philosophy at home, epistemology is the study of how we know things. And so it's a, it's a branch of philosophy. Um, and, and so this question about how we know that something is true, why we can be confident in things, it's a very puzzling and vexing branch of philosophy. And it's also a huge problem for Christians 
to to tackle because we, you know we every day we encounter people who assume that you know Christianity is something that we believe because of faith right which faith is somehow not related to objectivity at all it's just you know conjecture it's something that we believe that makes us feel good we believe in a heavenly sky fairy um, who you know is has a therapeutic you know means of making us feel better when we talk to him and. And that's kind of the criticism. Yeah, faith in this context is like a a blind faith, where it is like faith uh, uh, in spite of evidence rather than faith because of evidence. Yes, exactly. And and so when defending the faith, uh, I feel like a lot of us, you know, we, we ne- necessarily, we want to jump to objectivity, right? We're trying to make arguments for why there must have been an empty tomb, right? Um, we'll, we'll point to arguments maybe from Thomas Aquinas about why there must be a deity, logically speaking. And all of those are fantastic arguments. I'm not dunking on them whatsoever. Um, there's a place for all of that. But I do feel that we are almost sort of conceding too much ground to a rationalist worldview when we pretend that everything about knowledge must be objective and that there is no subjectivity involved in it. Um, or at least it, it maybe there is subjectivity involved in it, but there ought not be right. Like, like we have to be stoic thinkers and remove all subjectivity from our thought process. I actually think this is not the right way to approach a Christian epistemology. And I, I'm not an expert at philosophy and I'm not great at arguing it. But when I read the Bible, I see a lot of things like this, this whole passage about hope, right? Uh, in Romans five, or I see in the Psalms, I see a book of 150 Psalms that are just pure emotion. Uh, and yeah, they're emotion grounded in objective facts, just like in Romans 5. But, you know, we've got this giant portions of the Bible that seem to be concerned with nothing except our emotions um, and how we deal with God emotionally. Yeah. So, OK, <laughs> so I've kind of um, ranted about that for a minute. I have issues with this way of approaching epistemology, of this way of approaching knowledge. I think there's both objective and subjective components to knowing God and to knowing facts in the world around us, even unrelated to God, um, or at least unrelated directly. Everything's related to God, but you get what I'm saying. Like two plus two equals four. <laughs> Those kinds of facts that aren't Bible facts, but are just, you know, world facts. Um, so what do you think about that, John? <laughs> what, what is your take? <laughs> Here, Jonathan, solve all of the problems of... <laughs> well, so, so this is like in the intro to the Babylon Bee podcast when, when Kyle says, what do you think about feminism? Do you like it? <laughs> it's just like, where do I even begin? It's like way too big of a question. <laughs> do you like it? <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, I, I guess I would say that I I think that it's a really important line to walk because... And, and and I I guess I would just come back to I think Paul did it really well just in this verse I think I think he did it really well that you you got to hold on to both of them because there's one sense in which we have to affirm the existence of objective reality that is like beyond our experience like I I guess I would say that's kind of the whole thing about God being real <laughs> <laughs> right is is that there is this. There is, in fact, a being separate from myself who defines what the elements of reality are. And so, like, the fact that God is a being who is not me constrains reality to have, like, objective elements to it. So it's, you know, there there are things that are beyond my experience. That is, like, the whole thing of affirming God's existence is you have to affirm 
things being objective in the sense that they are independent of me. But at the same time, I, I, I think that the trajectory of like Western philosophy has been sort of a systematic critique of pure objectivism. Uh, and it, it's sort of been this like, you, you know, I guess from the Enlightenment, you have this like whole idea of like, ah, oh, there's, you know, objective reality and we need to like separate out our experience and our our like value assertions from the elements of reality. And, you know, that's how you get science and all of these great, wonderful things. And like, it, it's awesome. And it works because, you know, it, there is a sense in which that's true, that like, because God is real, there is objective reality. It is knowable because he is, it has been revealed to, like he has revealed it to us. And so like, that's why science works. And that's why like logic is a thing is because, you know, God, you know, because God exists. But at the same time, I think that the, you know, Western philosophers, you know, like Kant and like Hegel and like these people actually bring up a really great point of critiquing that, that just because the objective reality exists doesn't like mean that we have perfect access to it and that, you know, everything that we perceive is still mediated through our experience. And, and, and I think that's kind of where the tension needs to, to sit, that we on the one hand have to affirm there is in fact objective reality, but then on the other hand affirm that like God has decided that that objective reality is mediated to us through our experiences. That, like, God has made me a being with emotions who feels things about reality, who doesn't, like, I, I don't just observe reality, I react to reality. That there is something in me that gives response to the, like, the input from the outside world. And so, so I think we need to hold on to both of those things. That we can't try to say, I need to separate out my reactions totally from this reality, you know, because God has decided that like those reactions are built into me. It's part of how I operate. But at the same time, like, I don't think we can go the whole way and say, it's only my reactions to things. And it's only what my experience is. Like God really has done things. There really is an objective world out there. Like Christ really did die in, you know, first century Palestine. Like, like that actually happened. And, you know, so there is this, so we, we, I guess what I'm saying is we have to kind of hold together these two, these two pieces. And, I, I guess I think it's just kind of unfortunate that philosophy has developed the way that it has, um, where, you know, you have with the Enlightenment this emphasis on the objective, and then we have since then been, like, I think rightly reacting against it as, you know, a society. But, I, you know, I, we need to be careful not to swing too far the other way, I guess is what I'm saying. And And I think that the Bible, and particularly this passage that we just studied, actually does a great job of holding those two things together, that you have the experience of it that Paul talks about and the rejoicing in our sufferings and the God pouring his love into our hearts, you know, in the, the, like, uh, in other places you get the, like, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and, like, all these ideas that, like, it is something that you experience, but at the same time, it's grounded in the things that God has done in history, which are real irrespective of what our experience of them are and so we, we just got we got to sit with both of them man <laughs> well that's a great answer um i was curious because i when i think one thing you said that really resonated with me is this idea that something can be objective and we can affirm that it is objective and yet our access to that objectivity is subjective <laughs> like we you know if we are christians then we assert that god is is 
perfect and infinite and and pretty much defines what is true and what is false and and is the definition of reality himself whatever he decrees right but we aren't that god <laughs> you know we are separate cr creatures as the bible asserts and we might have access to knowledge about god and even knowledge of god as intimate friends and um and even you know children of god uh but god has never promised that we will have perfect knowledge of him uh and even in heaven, when we when we have sinless knowledge of him, it will not be comprehensive knowledge. We will never know everything about God uh, because, you know, we would need an eternity to do that. Um, and the thing about eternity is that it never gets to the end point of it. <laughs> so um, I don't know. I, I like that idea, that idea that, like, it is OK for us to subjectively affirm that objective truth exists <laughs> and that we have at least approximate access to it and that that is a firm grounding for hope and, and maybe maybe i'm not accurately depicting what you said but i've kind of settled on that that like i'm not able to answer every single objection to the christian faith you know using a socratic method <laughs> right or pointing to some sort of historical fact you know like i can point out that there's plenty of historical data that christ died and and even good arguments that he rose from the dead but even if that were true that doesn't prove every like that doesn't prove that, prove that the bible is an infallible interpreter of the meaning of that event like no matter what you do there's always some way that you could doubt some truth about the christian faith even if you affirmed the reality of the resurrection uh, and that, it seems to me, is what, like, Jordan Peterson, for example, is a public intellectual right now who's talked a lot about it. And he's not a Christian in the traditional sense. He, he likes Christianity. I think that's the right way to put his position on it, because he wouldn't affirm the historical death or the historical resurrection, rather, of Jesus. But he has kind of said something to the effect of, like, well, maybe it happened. <laughs> like, maybe, maybe Christ just you know, was a higher being than all of us and, and just knew how to be resurrected, you know, and, and I don't discount that is basically his, his point, um, which would mean he's not a Christian because he doesn't have hope and confidence in the resurrection. Um, but it, it is interesting that he's open to the idea that Christ rose from the dead, but I don't think for Peterson that would mean he embraces like Pauline Christianity um, or like historic, you know, Christianity in any sense, even if he were to come to that conclusion. Uh, so, that's just an interesting, like, I don't know. I think at some level, we have to be comfortable with being mere creatures who cannot infallibly access truth, even if we have access to infallible truth. Am I making any sense at all? <laughs> no, no. I, I, I think that's that's really the crux of it, that we have, like, God has revealed truth to us, but our, like, access to it isn't perfect. I, I don't know, maybe to, like, draw an analogy of, like, the database is perfect, but our, like, connection to it isn't necessarily perfect. I'm doing the coding. <laughs> it's very imperfect access to that database. There, <laughs> there we go. There we go. <laughs> and I don't know. Even even that, I, I, I think, is... Even that analogy isn't perfect. But I think it, it sort of is uh, elucidating this idea of, like, the access isn't perfect. But I guess one thing that I wanted to say about what you were saying is, you know, the way that we can be thinking about and talking about and defending both to ourselves and to others, the Christian faith is kind of something you were bringing up before is like, I guess this idea of where you start from is really important. And I'd say kind of in a lot of respects, determinative of where you will end up, you know, the, cause like, I, I agree with you that I think I struggle a lot with 
the way that the Christian faith is often defended in public by people where the focus, like you're saying, really is about like giving evidences for the resurrection or, you know, making logical arguments about the necessity of a, you know, good you know, like making theistic arguments of like, ah, oh, you know, because of this, this and this element of logic, therefore God must exist. Like, like, and, and, and that's sort of where a lot of the conversation happens. But I think we kind of get off on the wrong foot where our starting point is rationality or logic, where we sort of grant at the beginning of the conversation that like, oh, logic is the thing that we're going to start with. Or, you know, elements of history are the thing that we're going to start with. And like, I guess we just run into problems there because like what I would say is that's exactly where the problem of our subjective access to objective knowledge runs into like an issue of, you know, if your starting point is logic, you don't have a guarantee that your subjective access to reality is like actually mediating like, like that, that logic is actually getting you to the objective reality properly. Or similarly, if your starting point is like historical events, you don't have any guarantee that your subjective access to those historical events is actually reflective of what objective reality is. I think that you can, it only works if you start with the character of God who defines what reality is and therefore has revealed to us what reality is. And that's the only place that you can get a guarantee that there is some sense in which the objective reality is actually being faithfully, if not perfectly, mediated to you, is grounding it in God revealing it, that you need to start with the person of God. So from that sense, like, I think when you start the whole conversation of let me justify that God exists, I, 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 I think you have already kind of given up the whole argument right there, because if you don't have God existing... I think all of Western philosophy is basically telling you, you have nothing. <laughs> well, that's why I never watched the movie God's Not Dead. Because like in the trailer, at one point, the main character, whoever he is, he says something like, let's put God on like the, the bench or I don't know what he says. Something like we need to like test whether God exists or not. And I'm like, well, great. You just gave up the argument to the atheist. <laughs> like, like you entirely conceded the argument at the outset if you think that reality makes sense without a deity. Like, <laughs> like you can't, I mean, yeah, it seems counterintuitive perhaps to our rationalist mindset um, or post-enlightenment mindset in the West, but like you, you cannot assume atheism at the outset of proving Christianity. Like you, you, you can't assume that God is a negotiable fact of life, his existence. Um, that's not how it works. And I think often we try to argue again, like you were saying, John, from historical facts or whatever, and eventually we try to arrive at the existence of God, but then who's the, who's the real God then? Well, it's our rationalism. It's our ability to interpret the world around us, our ability to interpret the sciences correctly, um, or, or, or our ability to understand the words of scripture or whatever. Ultimately, we're relying on our own intuition as a God in order to arrive at the existence of a separate God, which is an inconsistent model of argumentation. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I know we're kind of just going off on a philosophical tangent here, although I'm finding it fascinating. Um, Real quick before we move on, though, I want to mention a book that is fantastic. And I you probably have not read it, John. It's not very well known, um, but I commend it to you and to all of our listeners. It is called Longing to Know, and it is by a Christian philosopher named Esther Meek. And seriously, you got to check this book out. It's super uh, like it's super well written for any skill level at philosophy. So if you're like, I don't know what epistemology is, don't worry. 
Esther Meek is super readable. And I highly recommend Longing to Know. And uh, we'll put some links down in the podcast description for everybody. Yes. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. And this uh, studying Romans 5, 8 for this episode really reminded me of uh, of this book. But um, so her thesis statement kind of of the book, and she teases out every word in this phrase in the book. But this is her whole statement. Knowing is the responsible human struggle to rely on clues to focus on a coherent pattern and submit to its reality. That's her definition of what it means to know something. Okay, I'm sold. So, I'm reading this book now. <laughs> it's so good, dude. It's so good. Yeah, so so she argues exactly kind of along your lines, John. It sounds like you're already kind of in her mode of thinking that like nobody actually learns things about the world around them from reasoning from some sort of objective universal standard and then like coming down to, you know, a logical argument, A, therefore B, B and A, therefore C, and then we arrive at some conclusion about the world. No, like we make sense of the world from like the clues that we've already kind of like <laughs> uh, subconsciously pulled together into a theory about the way the world works. And like a big part of her argument is that we do this as infants. And so like by the time we're even consciously um, thinking about our own thinking, so that would be metacognition. <laughs> That's another great word. By the time we're metacogniting or whatever the, the word would be. Metacognating is okay, what I Metacognating. Say. By the time we're thinking about our own thinking, Not sure if that's a we real already word. have thought about exactly how we understand the world to be. And, and so, you know, if you're a child who grows up with, with relatively, you know, responsive and, and, um, and loving parents, then you have an entire theory about the way parenting works and the way that like we can rely on our parents to give us a reasonably approximately correct understanding of the world around us as we grow up. And so by the time we're maybe 14 or so, and we can actually start thinking more critically about the things our parents have taught us our whole lives, um, like we already have a basis on which to judge things. And a lot of that is subconscious stuff and clues that we've picked up from the time we were nine months old, like our sons are right now, crawling around and, you know, grabbing things and expecting the things you grab to respond to your grabbing of the thing in a certain way, right? And, and trying to establish some sort of concrete, predictable understanding of the world around us. That's how we begin knowing things, right? We know that if we're hungry, our mom's going to eventually feed us those sorts of things. We pick up when we're very little and we start to develop a coherent pattern of the world around us and we start to conform our lives around that pattern. And that's the relying on clues part of her statement. So anyways, I'm not the expert at teasing out her whole argument. It's a fantastic book that you should read. Um, but I guess the point would be, she argues that like the, the whole objective and logic aspect of it is really useful, but it only comes in play later. Like we, we can't, <laughs> we can't, um, start our thinking, um, that way. That's not how humans actually are in reality. Um, and I think it's a compelling argument. Um, and I think as Christians, we should not pretend that we arrived at Christianity via pure objectivism, but rather God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And that is ultimately the ground of that, like the ground of our assurance the subjective ground of our assurance is the Holy Spirit within us. That's how we know day to day that we are saved, that we belong to Christ, because the Holy Spirit testifies to our hearts. That's Paul's argument in Romans 8, which we will get to soon enough um, in this podcast. But uh, but yeah, so <laughs> now, and, and then it is confirmed by objective facts that we can look at, like the death on the cross. So we know, okay, this there's something to this. This isn't just what I had for lunch. You know, this isn't the burrito I had. It's not the air conditioning. It's, you know, this really is the Holy Spirit working through me because I see the facts as Jesus hangs on that cross 
in 33 AD or whenever it was. Well, now that we've talked about philosophy for a long time and all of our podcast listeners have turned it off, except for like the two who are philosophy junkies like us, uh, how about we get back to like God's love, which is really kind of what this whole verse is about. You know, God shows his love for us in this. So here's a good question about this verse. Uh, who needed to be reconciled to whom? Or I guess it's not this verse, but the whole passage, right? This word reconcile, I think if we use that in everyday speech, there's kind of a two-sided aspect of it, right? So if I like do something that that is, you know, sinful and my wife's mad at me, right? Well, I need to apologize for, for what I did, but like Anna needs to also forgive me. There's like a two-step process, a two-sided process to reconciliation. So... What I mean, who needed to be reconciled to whom? Was there like one party who, I don't know, was like really wanting to reconcile with the other, but the other wasn't responding? Was God at enmity with us or were we at enmity with him? And I think clearly, just like in our ordinary use of the language, it has to be coming from both both sides because this passage says that God has wrath on us. <laughs> so, you know, God is not exactly um, like begging at that point for us to have a relationship with him. Oh, please. Like I want a relationship with sinful you. Um, he has wrath on us, but then obviously we're haters of God as well. Romans one thirty says that we hated God. Um, and plus this passage just says in verse six that, uh, we are ungodly. Christ died for us when we were ungodly. Uh, so there's clearly like a two way enmity here where there's a hatred on both sides. Right. I know that make, it might make us uncomfortable to think about God as as hating us in a sense, but he certainly it, why was his wrath upon us at one point? <laughs> if he, right. That's kind of the whole point of wrath. So I don't know. That's sort of how things are before this state of being saved by Christ. Yeah, I think maybe uh, like a helpful analogy is that, you know, we, we are in this state of like warring against God. And, you know, it's not like God's up there being like, oh, gosh, golly, I'm just so sick of this fight. And I wish we could all just put our, you know, arms down, or, you know, like that, that. That's not it at all. I mean, lame you know, God, that's a lame version of God, especially with yeah, that voice. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> yeah, totally. It's like, you know, God's not wishy-washy. It's like, you know, there's there's almost this sense in which, like, I mean, you want war, you get war, right? That like God's wrath is this like proper response to our rebellion. And like kind of the whole deal with it being reconciliation is that like God initiating our deliverance from our sins is something that is like as far as justice is concerned it's not the proper response to the state and the relationship that we're in like the the state of the relationship before salvation is like us warring against God and his wrath being put on us and so the like the proper response is like conflict between those two parties. And so the whole deal with like the reconciliation is that it is the it is a change in that relationship which as Paul's saying here it's it, it's something that's initiated by God. Yes, yeah. So yeah, there's kind of this state in which we're both at enmity with one another and then God initiates the process of reconciliation. Um so even though he has every right to continue his wrath against us, I mean, he's he's just, you know, this is <laughs> in the analogy where I sinned against my wife and she's mad at me. God is the wife because <laughs> we sinned against him, not the other way around. And, you know, um, so this is the justified anger of God in the same way that uh, an erring husband might might, you know, draw the ire of his wife in a very justifiable manner. Um, and so God is angry with us, but he initiates the process uh, and uh I think we need to draw a little bit on 1 John here to help us understand this. 
uh, I love these verses. We have 1 John 4, uh, 19. We love because he first loved us. That's just crazy. It's such a simple, short verse, but so meaningful. Like He started the, the, this process, and our love to him is only a response to his gracious love. And then kind of a little more drawn out, just a few verses earlier in 1 John 4, verse 10, it says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation means a sacrifice, something that turns away the wrath of God. So this verse is actually very directly parallel to Romans 5.8, right? It even has God the Father and God the Son as, as the two people involved, just like in Romans 5.8, like we uh, were talking about a lot earlier. So like really true love, like the, the truest love isn't our love for God. It's that he loved us and sent his son for us. He initiated the process. We love because he first loved us. We can only love as a response to it because God has poured his Holy Spirit into our hearts. Um, and that causes us to overflow with God's own love, right? Now that we're capable of, of loving in turn. But, uh, and that's why the book of First John, the whole argument of it is that, like, that we, if we don't have love ourselves, then we don't understand the love of God. Um, but <laughs> so First John 4 is a really cool passage to help us uh, help us get this. Certainly. And, 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 and I think that this highlights actually how it, like crazy God's love for us is and how crazy this notion of reconciliation and salvation through Christ, like how, how absolutely bonkers this whole thing is. Um, you, know, you know, the idea of, you know, we're, we're, we've been saying for a while that it's like that God is the one who initiates love in this. He initiates the reconciliation. But kind of the backdrop of what we've already seen is that as humans, we're the one who ones who initiated the en enmity that has developed between the two of us. We're the ones who are, you know, who have initiated the rebellion and God is the one who initiates the reconciliation. And and, and so that, that that's the crazy part. It's not that we have initiated this rebellion and we're like, oh, actually, you know, on my own steam, I've decided that I don't want to be in rebellion anymore. And so God's like, okay, I, I guess you can come in. It's that God is, you know, the one who's initiating it. He's the one who starts it. And, you know, I, I think like my, my wife has this thing that, that she likes to say where, you know, it's like in, in conflict, it's like the person who has been like harmed needs to take the bigger step in like the course of, of like reconciliation and forgiveness that it's like, if you're the one who has been wronged, it is a, it's like a bigger thing for you to like initiate than that process of like forgiveness and healing and healing and, and like re restoration of relationship. And I like, I think that has the ultimate form here in God that like, it is the biggest step that God initiates the healing of our relationship with him when we are the ones who violated that relationship. Yeah, it's one thing to die for your friends or for your family. It's another thing to die for your enemies to make them your friends and family. <laughs> like that's that's just a crazy concept. It's yeah, the more you dig into this, I feel like Romans 5:8 again, we agree with the Romans road interpretation of this. In fact, it's we've actually sort of supported it by arguing that Romans 5, 8 is definitely about like salvation from hell specifically um, and from God's wrath. So I think we've even sort of bolstered the Romans road point. But I feel like this verse gets quoted so much that we're sometimes lacking in these really cool things 
that are going on under the surface. We're like, oh, yeah, Christ died for us. And we're not like thinking about the, oh, like the loss of one's son that the father felt. We're not thinking about like why that is the ultimate expression of love, because we're just trying to get to that second part of the verse to prove our point theologically. Um you know, and all well and good, but geez, I'm sure glad we got this chance to talk about it in more detail because I feel like I even missed a lot of this until we were, you know, starting to brainstorm this episode. So it's time for the other meat. So for the applications this week, we are going to pose them as a series of questions that you can take uh, for your own pondering during the next two weeks. Um, I know that for me and Jeremy, we're, we're definitely going to be pondering these over the next few weeks as well, and we invite you to join us in this. So for application point of reflection number one, we'd say that, you know, kind of the whole point of this is that God initiates the process of reconciliation with us. And he did that while we were still bitter enemies against him, that we didn't ever, like, wave a white flag to signal to God that we were ready to be reconciled. God just did it. He just started it. And, you know, so, so he's like the one who moves on that process. So I think this is an encouragement for us that we can, like, be looking towards, you know, are there people in our lives who we currently are in the state of en enmity with that, you know, we might even consider our bitter enemies, but you know, are there these people that we can be initiating the process of reconciliation with? That being being an imitator of God in this, to use uh, uh, another biblical idea, to be like seeking the reconciliation of relationships with those who are around us. So I, I guess I would encourage you to think about, you know, are there people in your life that, you know, they might even have been the one who harmed the relationship it might not have been something that you did but that's exactly the state that we were in with god but he still initiated reconciliation with us so maybe we should be taking the first steps to initiating reconciliation with those uh, who are in our lives yeah fantastic i think a second application point uh, to consider is is our love both subjective and objective <laughs> like for our family our friends our spouses our brothers and sisters in christ and of course, for God himself, are, are we doing actions with heartfelt motivation um, or are we claiming to love with our lips, but we're failing to act at all on it? That's a good indication that we are deceiving ourselves and our lips are not speaking the truth. Uh, I'm, you know, so I think that's a good thing to ask ourselves. Uh, both of those components ought to be there with true love. If you never have feelings, <laughs> Um, about something, then you might not actually love it. That's, you know, maybe that's a little bit going against the grain there because uh, of all the love does talk. But I think they go together. I think we ought to have proper feelings and proper actions. Yeah, and toward that end that, you know, it's not wrong to pray and ask that God would be pouring his love into our hearts, that we can be like asking for the subjective experience of God's love towards us. You know, n not necessarily that we should be, like, seeking out a particular experience in any given case, but just that, like, God created us to feel things even as he created us to know things with our mind. And it's not wrong for us to ask for God to bring harmony between those two states. Now, I guess we would say application point number three may be connected with this of, you know, like, we can think about what attitude should we have toward worshiping God, given the fact that he has initiated reconciliation with us. It's like God is the one who has 
restarted our relationship with him, not us. And so, you know, like Paul talks about this, of that we can rejoice, we can rejoice even in our sufferings and that, you know, we know that it's producing hope. So I guess I would be encouraging you to, as you were thinking about the ways that you are worshiping God during the weeks, you know, up to and including, you know, Sunday morning worship as well. Is that something that is informed by the fact that God has initiated relationship with you? And how can you be forming your worship around this idea of God initiating reconciliation? Yeah, it's God who has given us the privilege to worship him, right? Sometimes we see it as a duty, and it definitely is a duty. That's not incorrect, but it's also a privilege, <laughs> um, and and I think often it ought to be a joy a joyful privilege. Again, going back to the subjective thing, honestly, like I feel like lately when I've been at church, um, like I just it, you know sometimes I'm just going through the motions. I think we've all went through that, and you know it's it's better to go through the motions than not go through the motions. But I I think it's good to ask every now and then, is there a good reason why my heart is cold? Right? Is is there a good reason why you know I never well up with emotions? Uh, about this stuff. I think we ought to, at least from time to time. Um, maybe not something we should be doing every time we eat lunch, but, but it ought to be something that that regularly inspires us. Um, and I think, I don't know, maybe maybe one way that, that I can reclaim that in my own life is by considering the privilege of it and considering that it is God who has allowed this to happen, his initiation. I'm not winning his favor. He won it for me and reconciled me to him, not the other way around. Um, so, all right, here's a big one. Uh, would we, we would we ourselves be willing to die for our enemies? <laughs> like many Christians have been able to follow Christ's example in this in this regard. You know, one example would be the uh, the famous missionary Jim Elliot, who uh, passed away. Uh, he was murdered by the people he was trying to reach with the gospel. Um, and later, I think it was that tribe that later that tribe came to know Jesus. Uh, but uh, so his ministry had fruit, but he never got to see any of it on earth. Um, would we be willing to die for our enemies? I think a lot of us would have trouble even dying for our friends. If I'm honest, it's hard for me to put myself in that in that position and like figure out how I would really um, how I would really respond in that moment. Would I have the courage to do it? And then when I think about my enemies, I don't think I, I really don't think I would have the courage to do that. That's incredible. So let's, let's uh, ponder Christ's example. And then maybe if the time comes when we can, you know, a lot of us, most of us are not going to have the chance to die for our enemies, but perhaps we could give up something of ourselves to help them. Perhaps we could be the, the good Samaritan who, who helps the man who falls into the hands of robbers, right? You might have the opportunity this week to inconvenience yourself to help someone in need of help who maybe you otherwise wouldn't help. And that's a form, you know, of death. It's a, it's giving of ourselves in some way. And if we're not willing to do that, then we wouldn't be willing to give up our lives either. So maybe one way that we can practically approach that is to consider ways that we can help people in need when we stumble across them, or even when we don't, just to reach out. And I guess question for reflection number five here. Um, in this passage, Paul tells us pretty straightforwardly what it means objectively to know that God loves us, and that is that he gave Christ to die on our behalf. But I think it also raises the question of what does it mean subjectively in our experience to know that God loves us? 
So I'd invite you to be considering that over the next two weeks here, you know, and and beyond even past that, but uh, to be thinking about, like, how is it that I know in my experience that God loves me? It's time for milk, not solid food. Well, that being said, we have a great uh, passage to go out on. <laughs> um, Paul says a lot of things that are hard to understand, or perhaps in in this case, something that is fairly easy to understand, but nevertheless goes so deep that that it's hard to ever fully understand. And uh, let's uh, read another verse from 1 John 4 to uh, close us out here. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. 1 John 4.16 Well, in the immortal words of the philosopher Porky Pig, that's all, folks. We thank you for joining us. If anything you heard today has sent you into a blind theological rage, feel free to lambast us on social media. Alternatively, if you liked what you heard, have Bible verses you want us to break down or questions you think we can answer, you can send them to thejohn315podcast at gmail.com. That's thejohn315podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.